to knowing me, but uh, I think I know most of you. In case for those I don't, I'm Phil Ross. I was with you uh, until about three and a half years ago. We went over to Alliance to help with a new church, an alliance called Wellspring Bible Church, which meets at Carnation Mall. And as I come in this morning and see old friends and I do miss, though, the two little bathrooms down in the corner. That's all we had. But, uh, I, but just refreshing the, uh, the memories of our time here, I, I'm just impressed this morning that the body of Christ is one body that meets in many locations, and we're just part of the body that happens to meet in Alliance right now. And never know what the future holds. They might ask me to leave any time. I don't know. Uh, I... Got a, the call from Bill, and I was sorry to hear of Kathy's father's passing. And I know it's a hard time for them, and I don't know a lot about the relationship, but I pray with you this morning that the Lord uses them, speaks grace through them to the family and to those folks who are there. Uh, they're good at that. Bill has remained a good friend. He, uh, we get together for, from time to time for a bite of breakfast and Bob Evans is his favorite haunt. I mean, uh, Cracker Barrel is his favorite haunt. Maybe Bob Evans, too. I don't know. But uh, at Cracker Barrel, I see him often, and, and it's nice to be able to sit and chat with him. And we have kept a good friendship. And I treasure Bill. One of the things about coming into this pulpit is that Bill is so doggone well organized. And he has things so well prepared that it's a little intimidating. Because we're two very different people. And uh, I'm not nearly as well prepared in, in my thinking usually as Bill. And I, he's the one that introduced me to an iPad. And I love the iPad. But I have not developed the courage to speak from an iPad. Can't do it. Because that iPad does things that I don't want it to do sometimes. And <laughs> I, uh, I'm just really uneasy trying that. You young guys, you wouldn't know anything about that. Well, we have been at Wellspring for the last several months in the book of 1 Corinthians. And sometimes when you bring a message out of a particular text, you finish it. And we share the pulpit, and a couple weeks ago I was in 1 Corinthians 8, three weeks ago to be exact. And I finished up with 1 Corinthians 8, and I realized... Uh, after thinking back through it, there was a lot that I hadn't said. And there was a whole different emphasis that I hadn't been able to get to. One of the things about doing a schedule where you're, you're on a schedule and, and you have a whole chapter to do in one week is that it's, it's hard to cover everything. So I talked that week about what will be the obvious theme as we read in just a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I think it was valid to the best of my ability. I tried to say what Scripture says. But it left out probably two other major subjects that are addressed here that I couldn't get to. And so this morning, I hope you'll bear with me because I want to go back to one of those subjects. And it's a totally different emphasis and a totally different outline for this section than I, than I took the last time. But uh, the, at, a, at a cursory glance of this, it may not seem applicable to, 
21st century Friendship Bible Church. But I hope that we see that not only was it did it apply to uh, Corinth in the first century and Wellspring in the 21st, it applies to friendship also in every other church everywhere. God's word is like that. It applies at all times. And the particulars may be different, but there are principles to draw out of it that are universal. And there are some principles here that are universal that I think are important for us this morning. Let me just review for a second and get your mind up to gear on the book of First Corinthians. I hope you have your Bibles with you. And, and as you open the book of First Corinthians, chapter 1, we're not going to start at chapter 1 and read the whole book. Don't get alarmed. Uh, but if you review back who it was written to, you see in the first couple of verses, 1, 1, and 2, it says, Paul, an apostle to the church of God at Corinth. Then he says, specifically, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would seem to be us to me, doesn't it? It seems to apply to us. But notice what he says, to those called to be saints, to those who are sanctified. You know the word saint, sanctified, holy, are all from the same root. It's all from the same word. And God's people are called to holiness. I guess we all know that, right? We're called to holy living. That's his design on our life. We're called to be a set-apart, unique people. God sets us apart at salvation. And I know Bill well enough to know it. You guys know all of this. There's nothing new here. Uh, he sets us apart through the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit at salvation. We are sanctified positionally at that moment. But that's not the end of the story. Because what he pronounces us to be as righteous, he then sets out to make us. And so he begins to work in our life day by day, hour by hour, to make us to be what our calling is, and that's sanctified, to set us apart. Called to be saints, he says. That's you, that's me. Moving forward, progressing. But when you read 1 Corinthians, you see that it was written to a messy church. We don't have any messy churches in our day, do we? Wellspring wouldn't have any of the problems, and friendship wouldn't have any of the problems that he's going to address in this book. But he's, he's writing to people who are rich. He's writing to people who are poor. He's writing to people who are young. And he's writing to people who are old. He's writing to people who are well. And he's writing to people who are sick. Just all kinds of people. He's writing to people who are really mature, even though they're fairly young in the face. And he's writing to some who aren't there yet or learning and on the road but aren't there yet. Maybe just embarked on the journey. Maybe just came to faith in Christ. So there's all kinds of people. But they had in common, and you see that in those introductory verses, they had in common a faith. They were called to be saints through the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they were called to the same calling of walking with him. They had a common faith. 
they had a common salvation. And so while they were different, there was a commonness, there was a sameness. And that's true of us, isn't it? Whether I'm at Wellspring or whether I'm here, any place that we are, we, are, we have a common faith that we share. Uh, when we share the Lord's table, we have the same heart toward it. We're remembering, aren't we? We're remembering, we're looking back to the time when Christ died for our sins and the implications of that. So we, we share a lot of things in common, and so did they. And yet, there's some unique things. And so the, the church from the beginning had some problems. In the early chapters, chapters 1 through 6 of, of this book, he deals with the problems. First problem was divisions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, you know, I'm of Peter. And so they begin to identify with particular leaders. And then some would say, and I can just picture this, oh no, he'd say, I'm of Jesus. <laughs> you know, right? And so they were, they were from all kinds of uh, different backgrounds, different people brought them to faith. And they saw those people as really terribly important. In fact, the only leaders they were going to follow. And so it created a problem of division. And Paul has to straighten out the problem. And then what usually happens is that one of the common problems is there was sexual sin in the church. So the second thing he has to address is sexual sin. And he does. And boy, does he address it. He hits it hard. And then... He begins to talk about lawsuits. You know the old somebody done me wrong song? Well, they had that problem. They, they had lawsuits in the church. And he said, no, 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 no. Believers shouldn't go to court against a believer. And he lays that out for them. So the church had these problems. And really not, not so different maybe than 21st century church. The particulars may have been a little different. But the principles, again, will be universal. And then he comes to chapter 7. And if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, and I, once again, I'm not going through chapter 7. I want to pick up one thing very quickly. I think it helps us to see chapter 8. In chapter 7, he says, now, he's changing pace. He's moving off of problems. And he says, now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And then he goes on. I won't read the rest of that verse because I'd lose your thoughts for the rest of this 30 minutes. I don't want to do that. So I won't read the last half of verse 1 of chapter 7. You can look at it. Um, But he's saying, okay, now I'm going to move from the problems that I heard about in those first chapters to the things that you asked me about. They have questions. But the church today, again, wouldn't have any questions about how to do things, would we? Said Phil facetiously. Uh, of course we would. We still have questions. And some of our questions are the same questions. We would just phrase them slightly different. So he's going to deal, I believe the rest of the book is about answering their questions. And certainly chapter 8 is one of those. The first one in chapter 7 was the issue of marriage. Uh, should we get married? It's hard times. Should we get married? And then how do we live together married in hard times? And great topic for our world today. How do we live together harmoniously in marriage in hard times? And so he deals with that. 
interesting that that's the first thing that he deals with. And then he comes to three chapters where there is a repetitive theme. And there's a word that comes up, and you say, what in the world does that have to do with us? And I'll give you the word ahead of time. It's idols. Now, I doubt that any of you have a little wooden or stone idol. I doubt very much that you have that kind of idols. But we have idols. Uh, I've tried to define idols. I've thought that through. I'm not going to talk about idols, but let's spend just a minute on this because I think it's important for where we are going. Uh, An idol, the word meaning, comes from a word that means something like phantom. It's something that looks like it represents something, but it does not. Another picture of that word would be mirage. Remember the old cowboy movies? They're dying of thirst and they're crawling across the desert. And they look out there and there's that beautiful oasis with the little pond. And they're just sure they've got water there and they crawl over and it's just more desert. It looked good, but there was nothing there. That's what idols are. They look good, but there's nothing there. What? Let your mind go for a minute. What are some of the idols that are in our culture today? Incidentally, there's a good book on idols. I've not read it all. I just saw it within the last week. It's called uh, Sipping Salt Water. It's by a pastor from Chicago named Hop. And so if you want to read a book on this and it brings it into contemporary society, then you, you should pick up that book. Uh, I think his first name may be Steve. But uh, at any rate, what are some of the idols today? What are they? Well, the first idol that comes to my mind is me. Hmm. I'm an idol because I look to me for everything. In the natural man, I'll just say I I like being self-sufficient. I really do, and I intend to do it. How about you? Many men are that way, aren't we, Jeff? Yeah. And men tend to be that way. That's, that's an idol. And, you know, jobs become an idol, don't they? We, we look to that job for everything. We find our whole identity in that job. So jobs become an idol, a position. Uh, titles. Well, titles can become an idol. But let me tell you, I know that they're a mirage. Can I depart and tell you a quick story? Uh, this will date me, but that's okay. In, in my early days, I was working for a company, Graybar Electric. My first real job, I was going to Kent State, and I went to work for Graybar. They're, they're, they were a different company. I'll just stop there and say that than they are today, but, but it was a neat company. And when I went to work at Graybar, they hired at extremely low wages. I liked the job. I got along with them. We were active in the church. We were functioning as youth leaders and so forth. And it was wonderful. But the wages were starvation. And I remember thinking, if I can get to $1,000 a month, we're going to be okay. Well, $1,000 a month came, and were we okay? No. Then what was the next 
uh, little mirage that was out there? What was the next little oasis? If I can just get to $1,500 a month, then we'll be okay. You know, and, but it doesn't matter what it is. They're all that way. When you get there, whatever that increment, and I'm not saying we shouldn't work toward them. Of course we should. But they're not going to satisfy us. They're all like salt water. You know what salt water does when you drink it? It makes you more thirsty. You actually become more dehydrated the more you drink of it. It's counterproductive to meeting your needs. And so we have idols. Sports can be an idol. Absolutely can be an idol. I don't know if we have any people here who worship sports. Uh, it gets harder and harder to watch sports, but, uh, but they can be an idol. Uh, you, you go through your own mind without trying to labor this too much. There are lots of idols in our culture. It was Luther. No, it was uh, Calvin that said, our, high, our hearts are idol factories. We're always making up new idols. And that's true today. It was true then. We don't have the little wooden gods or metal ones or stone ones. We have different kinds of gods, little g or idols. I, I tried to describe an idol, and this is what I came up with. Whatever or whomever I credit when things are going well, and whatever or whomever I look to when things are not going well, I think that's my God, that's my idol. And most often, I think in most people, that's to internalize and look at me. If that's what we're looking at, then we're looking at an idol. It may be to look at our job, our bank account, our position, our status, our family, or something else. That becomes our idol. A church can become an idol. It really can. It can become an idol. If we're looking to anything other than the living God at that moment, it's an idol. That's what it is. And so, yeah, we're, we're bothered by idols. I'm going to read chapter 8. Uh, before I do, let's just ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. And, uh, you know, we don't always do this, and you don't always do this, but it just seems right this morning. Would you stand with me out of just respect for his word as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 8? If you're able. If not, it's okay. He says, Now concerning offered, uh, the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, little g, little l, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all uh, are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat 
It is as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food doesn't commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, will the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? And let me just pause long enough to say, I don't think he's talking about eternally perish. I think he's talking about be diminished and their life be wrecked because they've violated their conscience. Verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Father, thank you for your word. I pray this morning that you would press it home to us. Lord, what would you have us to take from this part of your word? We believe that it's inspired by you, and we believe, Lord, that it is for us. And so we ask the question, Lord, what would you have us take from it? God, would you speak this morning through your word and through the stammering lips of myself standing before these people? God, I pray that at the end of this day, we would say we've heard from you. And Lord, we thank you that we can come in your presence. Thank you, Lord, that we can read your word. Thank you for freedoms all around the world, people who have these freedoms. Lord, thank you that we do. Lord, I pray that you'll bless us with your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Just a quick look at the local culture in court because it helps to understand this passage. I'm not going to talk about idols anymore, I don't think. Maybe a word. And, And I'm also not going to talk about Christian liberty because I think you could bring a message on Christian liberty out of this. It'd be, it'd be a good word. But I'm not going to talk about that. I've got a third topic, and I hope you'll see it here in a moment. But a a quick look at the culture in Corinth. They had many gods. They had gods for everything. They also had many demons. And they believed demons could inhabit all kinds of things. They believed that demons could inhabit the meat. And so one of the reasons that the meat had been offered as a sacrifice is they'd take a portion of it, and they'd take it to their... uh, whatever it was, their idol factory and their priest, and they would offer it as a bird offering to that uh, god, little G. And then the rest of the meat would go to the marketplace. So after these people were saved, some of them real quickly caught on. Since those gods, little G, are nothing, since they don't exist, there are no gods but one, uh, since they don't exist, we can eat anything doesn't matter. But others had had a lifetime of baggage here. And, and those were the ones that didn't see it so quickly. And he calls them the weaker brothers. And so they couldn't eat it. And the problem existed was that some of them felt the liberty to eat, and others didn't. And so you've got a conflict. You, see, you can see how it would happen, can't you? 
you've got a conflict in the church. The weaker ones are being harmed by the strong ones. And if these strong ones exercise that liberty that was rightfully theirs, then they could hurt the weaker brother. And so that's the, kind of the overall picture. But when you look back to those first three verses, and that's where I want to spend our time, the remaining time, there, there's an interesting wrinkle comes into this. Notice those first three verses. He says, concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And then he goes on and says, knowledge puffs up. Does it? Does knowledge puff up? You know, I, I think about our faith. At age 25, I thought I had all the answers. I really did. I I read the Bible, you know, I'd sat down with people, I'd read books, and I could answer questions on theology reasonably well, and I thought I had all the answers. At age 40, I thought I had all the questions. I wasn't so sure I had all the answers anymore, but I, I thought I had all the questions. I've kind of got the questions down. I know which ones to ask, which, which are the hard ones. And at age whatever it is today I am, I won't tell you, um, I wonder if I know anything at all. Sometimes I'm just not sure I know anything at all. Because this body of faith gets bigger and bigger and bigger the older I get. And I realize I don't know very much. And as a young man, sometimes I probably still think I know too much. But as a young man, I thought I knew it all. And some old people really kind of think they know it all. Dangerous place to be because knowledge puffs up. And folks, you know what it's saying here, don't you? I don't have to even try to describe that. Uh, knowledge makes people feel like they really have, have a handle on things. I know the answer to this, and I can't wait to tell you. Right? I know. And what that can do, it can be about me. That can all be about me. Um, if you haven't stopped to marvel about our faith recently and just wonder, let me give you an exercise, something you could do. If you want to realize how little we know, walk outside one of these starry nights and just sit down by yourself for five minutes and look around. I did that as a young boy. I don't do it enough now. But just look around. And the first thing that happens is you feel smaller and smaller and smaller. But then something else happens. Someone made all of this. And even with all of the modern technology, we don't have an idea how far out this universe reaches. We don't know how far out God's creation reaches. It is so vast that we can't imagine it. And then we look at this and we say, God, you're more than this. We can't say bigger because that's the wrong term. He's infinite. God is infinite. Have you wrestled with the infinity of God without boundaries? That describes God. And so why did he make it so big? Well, maybe just to show us 
that as big as it is, and this is a terrible way to say it, but he's bigger. He's more than. And we need to do that once in a while. Just look at his creation. Look at the systems in it. And recognize that that is our God. That's the God who's chosen to reveal himself. Have you wrestled with the concept of the Trinity recently? Have you? Um, if you think you've got the Trinity under control, I'm concerned about you. Um, the Trinity is one of those teachings, just like the self-existence and eternality of God. I can't get my mind around it. I believe it, but I can't get my mind around self-existence. He depends on nothing or no one for his existence. He's self-existent. Well, he's also eternal. We think we've got knowledge. Think about this. God is three in one. I've heard people try to explain it. They've used the egg, and it just doesn't work. It's so inadequate. Yeah, it's got three parts. You know, it's got the shell, the white, and the yolk. But you can separate them. You can't separate God. He's inseparable. He is unity. He's one God who exists in three persons. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it on earth. And there's only him in heaven. So there's nothing like it. We can't get our mind around God. And and it's good for us to know that. I think those are the kind of things he's talking about. Knowledge puffs up. Folks, we need to understand that God is bigger than we know. Don't we? He's bigger than we know. He's more than we know. And so we need to just back up once in a while and, and look at God. Some people have said that God is one God, but he manifests himself in three ways. That's modalism and it's false doctrine. No, that's not true. God is one God who exists in three persons in his essence. That's who he is. And so they don't have a jet. They don't see a jet. If we think we've mastered it, we have an issue. And then look at verse 2. If, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. It sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? Uh, if you think you know something, then probably you don't know nearly as much as you don't know. Somebody said, if I can get this phrase right, not knowing isn't the problem. Not knowing that you don't know, that's the problem, right? So it's not not knowing. Sometimes standing up and saying, I don't know what this is saying, that's not the problem. The problem is standing up and saying, this is what it's saying, when you really don't know. That's the problem. Sometimes you need to back off and say, I don't know. I just don't know. And we need to know what we don't know. There's a young man in my life, not a family member, but a young man that we're close to. And, and one of the things that concerns me about this particular young man, you have no way of knowing who it is, but is that he doesn't yet know what he doesn't know. And I have a feeling he's not going to be real useful to God until he begins to realize that there are things he doesn't know. Some really smart people. I've known it through a few, uh, don't have all the answers. There are people that impact our lives. I, I had a 
professor of theology who was a sweet, humble man. His name was Pinter, Joseph Pinter. I don't know that any of you would know him. He's been retired for several years. But, but Joe Pinter was a sweet-natured, humble guy. And yeah, he had DDs and MDivs and all of the letters after his name. But you never knew it because that's not who he was. But I can remember standing before him. And, and he at times would just say, I don't know. I just, I don't know. And then Bill Thrasher, who was at Moody uh, in their grad school. Bill Thrasher is published, an author, William Thrasher. You may, have, may or not have seen his name. But he was a precious man. You'd go into his class, and sometimes he would just stop. He'd just stop where he was, and he'd say, I just don't know if that's all God would have me to say about this. And it it was kind of refreshing. But he also was a guy who was willing to say, I don't know. It's okay, folks. It's okay not to know everything. Yeah, we should strive. If there's questions, we should seek to know them. But it's okay. And uh, we need to be okay with it. And then in verse 3, I want to focus a few minutes on this. It's a strange little verse. He says, if anyone loves God, that one, this one, is known by God. And before I try to explain it, let me ask you a question. Who are the teachers that had the greatest impact on your life? I wish we had a few minutes. I'd ask you to tell us about them. Or maybe who are the pastors that had the greatest influence on your life? Who are the Sunday school teachers that had the greatest influence on your life? Who are they? Let let your mind go a second. Who were they? Who are they? And here's my suspicion. If you have time to think about it, it's not what they knew that you remember. What you remember is they loved you. Am I right? It's that they loved you. They cared for you. They cared for your soul. They cared for your whole being. And they cared for you. And it imprinted you. I had a teacher in about fifth grade. She was a substitute, but she ended up teaching a good deal of a school year. And she was, her name was Fry, Mrs. Fry. And she was a sweetheart. Here it is, this umpteen years later. I remember her name. I can still see her face. And, and, This gentle soul imprinted my life because she genuinely cared for us. She would talk to us as people, and she cared for me. And I remember her, and I know Mrs. Fry was a believer. I had just heard enough from her, even long before I was. I know she was a follower of Christ, and she was echoing Christ in our lives. But there are people like that, that they imprint us, not because of what they know, Now, let me just say this. We should know our faith. If you read the book of Colossians, it talks a lot about knowing. And we should seek to understand our faith. I'm not extolling uh, the lack of knowledge as a virtue. That's not the truth at all. What I am saying is that knowledge is not enough. I think that's what this verse is saying. Knowledge is not enough. You hear that? Because knowledge without love is inadequate. In fact, just for a second, turn over to chapter 13. He's going to deal with the subject of love. 
chapter 13, verse 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Wow. And I have all faith in addition to that so that I can move mountains, but I have not love. How's it finish? I'm nothing. Oh, I have all knowledge. I understand all the mysteries. And if I don't love, then what, are, what am I? Nothing. Knowledge without love is inadequate. You know, you can have DD, MD, uh, PhD, and all of those letters, and if you don't have love, you're not going to be useful. Uh, flip that around. You may not have all the answers, but if you genuinely love, you're going to be useful. And then seek to get the answers. Continue studying. Continue growing in your faith. But you'll be useful if you love. You don't have to wait to have all the answers to start loving. You know, as we were sitting here this morning, I was uh, thinking about this text. And I always pray. I, my knees are still always shaking when I walk into any pulpit. It's part of life. And I'm always nervous and wonder. And uh, I, I wondered this morning, Lord, what, how should I be praying? I, I, I usually ask him that. How should I pray? God, and it's always helped me to have clarity and help me to be able to work through this, help me to make it make sense. But knowing what we were dealing with, I said, God, help me to love these folks. Because Phil doesn't necessarily love just naturally. You know, I'm pretty self-centered. I suppose that's true of many of us, but I know I am. And I kind of like my own little bubble. And I, I like my own space. And I don't necessarily like people invading that space. And it's, it's not always easy for me to love others. So I, what I have to do is I have to ask God to help me love. And then I have to remember that the Lord said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was it? Well, he so loved the world. And so I said, Look, God, help me to love. And I think that's always a right prayer. And when we don't pray enough. God, help me love these folks. Help me love them like you do. Help me to feel with them, feel toward them with the same passion that you do. Help me love them. You know, he doesn't contrast uh, knowledge and ignorance in this passage. He contrasts knowledge and love, doesn't he? Interesting. It's a twist. Well, I guess the question becomes, what would God have us to take away from this? That's usually the question. Right, Jeff? What's your usual phrase? Come on, give it to me. So what? That's right. When, when I was in the class, I always commissioned Jeff to ask that question. Uh, he'd always say, so what? Okay, well, here's a so what out of this. Here's some things I think the Lord would have us take away. And to anybody that's in a teacher or leadership role, and we all are, no one's exempt from that because you're a leader or an influencer in somebody's life, then we want more than just knowledge. We want knowledge, and we want to be able to impart that knowledge. But it needs to be more than that. Leaders from Friendship Bible Church, pray, ask God to help you love these people.
Would you do that? Teachers, would you do that? God, help me love these people. Because I can give them knowledge, but if it's not reinforced by love, it's going to have no effect. It's going to have no impact. God, help me to love these people. I think that's a good takeaway. Forty years from now, they're not going to remember what you knew. Forty years from now, they're going to remember how you loved. And then to all Christians, we didn't talk about this, but we need to be careful that in our Christian love, we don't do damage to a weaker brother. And that could come in all kinds of forms. Whatever illustration I give you, uh, some of you would be challenging it. But often the weaker brothers are the ones that make a lot of rules because they need the rules. They have to have this structure and rules. That's how they live their lives. We live our life in relationship. We live in our, in our, our life in communion with the Word of God and allowing it to live through us. We don't live by a bunch of rules. Well, the weaker brothers in this church, you see it in the chapter, if you read through it again, they were living by rules. And, and we need to be careful, though, that in our exercise of Christian liberty, that we remember to love. Because we might have the freedom to do something. You consider what it is. I don't know what it is. I think of a couple of modern illustrations, but they'd be inept. So whatever it is, in their case it was eating meat, sacrificed to idols. In our case it is fill in the blank. But don't use that liberty without love. Consider your brother. And it may be that you have to just hold back. It may be, you listen to this, be careful now. It may be that you have to give up a freedom. It may be that you have to give up a right, something that you could rightfully do. It may be you have to back away from it. Um, I was in a school for a time that did not allow sports on Sunday. You couldn't go shoot a basketball on Sunday. You really couldn't do much. And... Am I among friends? I think they're nuts as a cricket. Uh, I don't think God's in the least offended. I think we set apart his day. I think we worship him. I don't think he's at all offended by family activities or me going to throw a football with my grandsons. I just don't. And, and, and yet, in that context, it was required of me, I believe, in Christian love not to do it. So you don't do it. Am I hurt by that? No, I'm not hurt by it. Even though sometimes I sat in there and said, I could be doing this. But sometimes you just don't do it. And, and you know the kind of things that, that that fits in today. I'll give you another one. And that's a, a drinking any kind of alcohol, wine. I, I know in whatever size group we have this morning, there are people on both sides of that. I know there are those that would say, absolutely, positively not. And they'd go to a couple verses and, and to prove it. There are others that would say, I feel total freedom. Sometimes, maybe, we don't exercise that freedom. I sat in a kitchen in Moldova, and a gentleman said, I may have even told this story before, but it sticks with me. He said, I want to share some of my cherry juice with you. There were about five of us. 
Uh, two of them were missionaries. One of them was a pastor and a couple of other people in this room. And then an older gent who was the owner of the property. And he wanted to share his cherry juice. So he got it out. I began to get suspicious when he handed us these little tiny cups. Uh, that maybe this isn't cherry juice. So he poured us this little bit. It had cherries in the bottom of it. And... Uh, he poured it in these little tiny cups. I began to sip on it, and I said, no, this isn't cherry juice. But he said, as he's sitting there, he said, we will never again sit here together like this. And he was right. We wouldn't. I think it took me 14 cups to realize what it was. <laughs> I'm kidding, folks. I did. Uh, it couldn't have been more than 10. Uh, I, I... I took one, and I realized that if I emptied it, it was going to fill it again. So I nursed it. But, but all of us took of that. And you know what? We didn't have one iota of conscience before God over that. And I, I would feel total freedom in doing the same thing again, total freedom. Now, if I were in a different context, and this isn't Joseph Fletcher's situation ethics, if I were in a different context, I might not do that. I don't. I wouldn't go sit somewhere in a public place and drink it. I'm just not going to do that. I, I just wouldn't do it. I'm not. I don't. I'm not going out like that. Because why? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because there are people who certainly don't feel that freedom, and if if they saw me, it would hurt them. I'm not going to do it. I think that is an illustration of it. Well. The third thing I think would have us, the Lord would have us take away, is that you can love while learning. You don't have to know everything to start loving, right? You can start loving people now. And you can start getting out of your comfort zone loving people now. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have all the answers because you're never going to have all the answers. And this is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. It's in his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's how we know love. That's the model of love. Jesus came to die for our sins. But then he goes on and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, so also ought we to love one another. How about loving Wellspring Bible Church? You know, it's been a hard plant. It hasn't just gone leaps and bounds. And it's been, it's been a hard church. Uh, Ron Embleton has been there from the beginning. He's worked hard, and it's okay, but it's not as far along as we'd like to have seen it. Um, Alliance is a poor community. It's a hard community, and, and we're still working at it. Pray for Wellspring Bible Church. It's an extension. It's a way of loving. Uh, and then reach out to your neighbor. Phil, Phil needs to reach out to his neighbors. Phil needs to reach out beyond his comfort zone, and so do you. So we can love while we're learning. I got a call from a friend this week. His name is Randy. Randy Flum. Randy is Scandinavian. His family was Finnish. And uh, I met Randy a number of years ago in college, and, and he became a dear friend. He endeared himself to me because... Uh, he was just about a half a bubble off. He would do things that nobody else would do. One time, we were up on the tennis and ball courts, and 
and one of the professors had a son there that was a brat, about 13 or 14. And Randy was a big, strong guy, 250 or 60 pounds, and he picked this boy up, and he folded him up, and he walked over, and he stuffed him in a trash can. <laughs> you should have heard the amens. <laughs> and, uh, and about 15 minutes later, uh, I won't give you his name, but he visited Randy's home. <laughs> he wasn't very happy about his son being trash, even though he probably needed it. But, but Randy had a unique manner of speaking. Uh, he left out words. Uh, he'd say, uh, go town. He'd leave out the subject of the sentence uh, in any descriptive word. He didn't say, I am going to town. He just would say, go town. And we were supposed to all understand that. But that was, that was part of his culture. But, you know, we talk, we, as we always do. He's moving. He's been in North Carolina for the first few years. Randy has pastored for a number of years and was in a church down there. And he's moving back to northern Minnesota. Can you imagine that? Uh, moving back to cold, cold countries, almost to the boundary waters. And he's describing what's happening, and he's, he's preparing a home up there. And at the end, Randy, as he always did, did, does, he said, I love you, brother. Randy's a smart guy. He knows a lot of stuff. But you know what I remember about Randy is that he does love me. And it took me a minute because my first response is, yeah, I love me too. But no, I had, I had to take a minute. I don't usually respond too quickly, but I do love Randy. He's a dear man and a dear friend. He has my heart. And, and I, I said, Lord, help me. Help me to love Randy right. And I do. And I, I'm, I want to know everything happening in his life. One of the missionaries that you support, dear friend, Ken Booth, um, anytime I talk to Ken, whether in, uh, directly or by email, which we've done for years, Ken always finishes his comments with, I love you. And uh, Ken knows a lot. You want to know about language, culture. Sit down and talk to him. He's a wealth of information. But that's not why he's important. Why he's important is that he loves me. And I don't have any trouble saying back. I've known Ken since these high school days, saying, Ken, I love you too. And, and so should, should it be, right? Uh, we ought to love one another. We may not always say it just that way. We ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, I trust you, and I trust you with your word. Lord, where there are things that are excesses, would you take them away? Where there are things that are inadequate, would you build them in? Lord, most of all, would you change us? Would you mold us? Would you make us more like Jesus? Lord, if there's someone here who's never come to know him, who does not know the Christ who became the satisfaction for our sins, would you press that on their heart this morning? Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We love you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the love for one another. In Jesus' name.